Well, Axe, we had just finished taping this morning our new Hacks on Tap. We are having our celebratory martini. The thing was wrapped up, and now we're rushing into the booth again for a quick, urgent bulletin before the show because there's some news. What just came over the wire? Well, the news is that Hacks on Tap is enormously powerful because we spent <laughs> a great deal of time, as people will hear, talking about the travails of the Kamala Harris campaign and our doubts about its future. And by afternoon, she was out of the race. So someone, and I think it's that sneaky Jeff Fox who's engineering this uh, podcast, must have leaked our conversation and she immediately called a meeting of her staff and pulled out of the race. So there you have it. But this was foreshadowed. We've talked about this later. I would just say this about Kamala Harris. I think she had message issues in this campaign. She had money issues in this campaign. This is not the end of the story for her. She has uh, some real gifts. And I think that she will very much factor into, depending on who the nominee is, the vice presidential discussion come uh, next summer. And she probably enhanced her ability to play in that mm -hmm. by getting out of the race now and not after a bad performance in Iowa or New Hampshire. Yeah, that is probably part of their plan to cut their losses now and try to salvage. She's still young. She still has talent. Uh, we will see. I thought there were two points of interest on the way out for her. One, uh, and also, before I mention them, there's always the looming issue of the California primary. You don't want to run in your home state primary and not do well. And the legal deadline to get off the ballot was coming up quick. Uh, so for all those reasons, uh, that's not a surprise what she did today. It was ironic. I saw in one of the news uh, bites a few minutes ago that – uh, the news was leaked by her staff before she could go out and, and say yeah. it. So, you know, kind of a little bit of ungraceful behavior till the end, a, a campaign that leaks a lot. And second, boy, how is the news media? I'm not sure which network has the next debate, but as of today, Cory Booker has not qualified yet. So we could have a debate without any uh, African-American candidate on the stage with Deval Patrick and Cory Booker not qualifying. I think that uh, that's something they can and should make a little hay about. Yeah, especially in a party where 25% of the primary voters are African-American. So there you have it. That's our news flash. And now back to the show. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Well, post-Turkey Day, here we are, X. How'd your Thanksgiving go? It was great. It was great. I'm just coming out of the food coma now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they but, needed a block and tackle to get me in the car afterward. It's a fun time with the kids and the grandkids, so I'm oh, wow. uh, happy about that. But now we've landed back in the real world, or what passes for the real world here. Turned on my TV this morning, and I see a uh, president of the United States sitting with the president of France in a bilat in London, at the NATO conference, and it was interesting. I don't know if you caught any of it, but uh, there was I, I saw a glimpse. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I'm amazed he was able to peel you from Fox and Friends. But anyway, yeah, I saw it too. Because <laughs> we're having a moment here as the president goes to the NATO summit and, of course, picks a fight. Yeah, right away. But, uh, you know, he had condemned Macron because Macron said the NATO alliance was brain dead because the U.S. had withdrawn essentially from leadership. Uh, and so this was their first time together. And Trump 
you know, gave a little oration about how NATO's stronger than ever because uh, he's mm-hmm. gotten people to contribute more uh, to their own defense. And uh, Macron said, yes, that's great that people are contributing more. It's the right thing to do. But we also have to know what our mission is. And if we uh, don't stand up to Turkey when they go after our allies, the, the Kurds who've been fighting with us against ISIS, uh, or when, uh, you know, the INF uh, treaty is disbanded and we have missiles potentially pointing at Europe and we have no replacement, he said, these are problems for our alliance. We have to understand what our mission is. So basically, he went after Trump on Turkey, on Russia, and Trump just kept coming back to, yeah, but people are paying more. And it struck me that, uh, you know, for people who pay attention to this stuff, Macron's critique was pretty devastating and right on target about the nature of the NATO alliance. But for the politics here at home, uh, you know, Trump with his base is probably scoring big. He, he uh, said, you know, we've uh, gotten them to contribute another $131 billion, and it's going to quickly be $400 billion. Now, that number, I'm sure, will be quickly tested by fact checkers uh, the yeah. world over. But, the, I mean, I think we have to always step back and say, the guy knows his market. Yeah, you know, I thought it was very telling in a lot of ways. One, the the kind of grim irony of Trump that we, we've been living with now for, seems like, forever, which is he goes to a meeting of the most important alliance in our national security, the one that's held the peace through the Atlantic for 75 years, and he picks a fight because Trump doesn't know what an alliance is. He's a lone operator. So, you know, it, it was like no fighting in the war room from Strangelove. The whole thing is so <laughs> sort of absurd. Uh, he goes to the alliance to blow up the alliance. And, of course, I am not surprised, Ax, to see you siding with the French yet again. But, but that's why it works with it's our base. And the, the, the fries, truth is, by the way. I'm siding with the French on this. They are right. Trump <laughs> is wrong. And I'm sure Trump will boil over now and tweet a bunch of anti-Macron stuff stupidly uh, going forward because he doesn't like to be schooled. But but the fact is, um, in Trump world, uh, this stuff will resonate. You know, it's interesting. Trump immediately went to who pays what in the NATO. And there, there are legitimate issues about all that. Uh, though the French are a pretty good military contributor, believe it or not. So, yeah. I, 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 But he makes it adversarial. And he makes it, again, you know, a him versus them thing. Everything of Trump is him versus them. Though I will say one last thing about this. And and this is, I guess, my Trump rage boiling over. There's always been a tendency to kind of treat Trump supporters with kid gloves. Well, they, you know, they're good people. They just, it's almost a little condescending. And it's a free country. People can be for Trump if they want to. But in that group of supporters, there's also a bunch of, I'll use a technical political consulting term here, dumbasses. And one of <laughs> Trump's great political strengths is... Is that with a capital D or a lowercase? Huh? <laughs> well, it, it's with two M's and two S's. Spelling is not a core <laughs> skill there. But the fact is, I'm going to sound like a big elitist here, and I know, ooh, wah, not supposed to. But Trump speaks dumbass really well. And to show up at a critical NATO meeting... Uh, where they've got big stuff to do with Putin and immediately switch into some parking lot dispute over rent, uh, which is, you know, a, a money dispute, which is who Trump is. It does resonate with people who think that's right. Everybody in the world is our enemy. Alliances are nothing. The French eat too much cheese. So go give it to that French guy. You know, it's just it's so stupid. And we have a stupid president who speaks stupid. And that should tell us a lot about maybe the weakness in our culture, that there are tickets to be sold there uh, in the electoral sphere. So I'm but I'm right. We you have to deconstruct it. 
I brought it up because I thought I might be able to draw you out of your shell a little bit (laughs) and express yourself uh, on this subject. (laughs) Related to this, I sat down last week with Gary Cohn, who you'll remember was the director of the National Economic Council during the first 18 months or so of the Trump administration. And he was the... um, you, you remember former Goldman Sachs yeah, executive. Yeah, chief grown-up basically in the White House, or at least perceived to be going in. But uh, it was interesting to hear him talk. I said to him, look, you knew going in that he ran on an anti-trade platform, an anti-immigration platform, an ant- a climate change denial platform. You had diametrically opposite positions on all of that. So why did you take the job? And here's what he said. I thought that I could potentially sway him yeah and i also know historically that sometimes what you run on is not exactly what you mean when you come to govern in my mind having a seat on the inside and trying to influence was better than being on the outside and trying to get to a more positive outcome on you know climate on trade on immigration i come from a fact-based world If I can empirically show you facts and I can show you reality, that's supposed to win the day. I went in overly prepared with factual analysis. And in many respects, look, it may not have ended up where I wanted it to end up, but he's the ultimate decision maker. I'm supposed to do my job and make sure that he understands the impact of that decision. So this was on my Axe Files podcast that's up uh, that came, uh, went up on Monday, and in it he he described essentially himself uh, McMaster Kelly, Rob Porter the staff secretary as guardrails, and he said we essentially said we prolonged these decisions and made him understand the consequences of them even though he did what we recommended he not do uh, in the end. And, and as I was sitting there listening to him, I thought, you know, this is actually why Trump is strong with his base, because he basically he, he rejected the, the advice of the you know, so-called globalists around him. He rejected the advice of people who support immigration, who support trade, who support the idea that climate change is a mortal threat to the planet and we have to do something about it. Uh, even in the face of facts, uh, he uh, re- rejected uh, their advice. And, you know, it, this is shocking and horrifying to a lot of people. To his base, it's a certification of authenticity. It's the reason no, totally. that Trump hangs on to his 40-whatever his percent. No, no, look, totally. It's interesting because what, what Gary Cohn was saying, you heard a lot around Washington, around Republican circles at the beginning of Trump. And it's gone from a sort of rational explanation of why to go into the White House into the alibi. You know, for, well, I, I, I seek, it was like, I remember reading the memoirs of Marcus Wolffield, head of the Stasi. It's a great book. And he's talking about, you know, whenever they talked about assassination, I, I, I would cough twice and I never went to the Christmas party with those guys. You know, so (laughs) this is a bit of an alibi, but, but, but you're right. Your point about the politics of it is right. It, It sort of reminds me of the old joke about the cannibal king. You know, they'd, they wanted to civilize them and they'd always get a box of bones back with a note sent another ambassador. The last one was delicious. So in Trump's <laughs> kind of dumbass kabuki theater, again, I'm wound up today about him because I care about NATO. He, uh, he, it's always guys in suits come in and try to explain to him the way the world works and he straightens them out. 
You're fired, Gilbert Gottfried. And that works. That works to his chunk of the voters who, who want this simpleton play. Uh, now, some are for him. I, I, I just have to defend some Trump voters. I feel a little regret. Some of his voters are conservatives who just can't <laughs> can't <laughs> fathom that Democrats have policy reasons to like Trump. Fair enough. But for a lot of them, this kind of dumbass kabuki theater is entertaining. And to them, it all makes sense. Trump's independent, as you say, is authentic. And he's not going to let any guy have a bunch of fancy degrees in a suit who speaks French tell him what to do in the White House or anywhere else. So it's... Uh, it's part of the special sauce, and it, it is what Trump has. So speaking of your cannibal joke, we lost two more candidates. Two more candidates were sent back as bones uh, this week from the Democratic race. Joe Sestak, uh, most people didn't know he was in the race, former uh, military official. and yeah, Didn't he fight H&R Pup and stuff, C-Stack or something? I don't know. I, I, I've, I've only heard the name once before. <laughs> and Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, who I actually uh, think was mm-hmm. a really attractive guy, but got in late, was from a small state, had no fundraising base. Um, he learned what other most of the other moderate candidates are learning is that it's hard to raise money online uh, that way. Uh, and so he came and went, and now he's out of the race, won't run for the Senate from Montana, which was the fond dream of a yeah. lot of Democrats. So I don't think we have to dwell much on how those exits affect the race. Um, no, but I, I've got one quick thing on Bullock, because I thought he was instructive. You know, on paper, he's a perfect Trump beater. Montana, moderate, wins in a red state, and, and he never really got started. And I think part of it, you know, in the old days, as you well know, you could go to New Hampshire and Iowa for a little bit of money, try to get something going on a retail basis with, with enough money, which I'm not sure you ever had to get kind of a, a startup. You would get in the local debates there because there would be New Hampshire-based debates, South Carolina. With the new debating plan, some genius in the basement of the DNC came up with of all these criterias, you quickly squeeze out the little guys. And, well, I get that for a lot of debates if they still had the local Des Moines Register Field debate, uh, MUR or something in New Hampshire, the Bullocks would have had an easier platform, I think, early to yeah, break maybe. through or in the you middle. Know, one, one, thing I would, one thing I would say that, uh, yes, I, I mean, I agree with what the DNC did just because you have a field of 25 people and it is, uh, you know, because Bullock wasn't pulling – uh, significantly better in Iowa or New Hampshire than he was nationally, which is to say close to zero. So if you had any kind of standards in those debates, he wouldn't have made those. But, you know, I said earlier, hard to raise money at, uh, online as a moderate. You know, what flies in the face of that and what is a difficult kind of case study for Bullock in defending his own performance. And again, I think I think he's a great guy. I, I really was impressed by him. But you know, Mayor Pete was is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and is now a top tier candidate in the race. Uh, he is running not uh, on the left, but as a, a center left kind of moderate candidate, uh, and yet he is in the top tier of the race. So it's not that it can't be done. Uh, mm-hmm. You would have guessed at the beginning that he had less of a chance of breaking through just on paper than Bullock. And he has broken through. So that's just a a, no, a note. Uh, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Though I'd say Mayor Pete's base originally was people with high SAT scores who have money. I went to a Mayor Pete fundraiser. It was like an Ivy Club of 30-year-old you know, year old Ivy League graduates. But to his credit, it worked. How high were your SATs? <laughs> Not high enough to be at that fundraiser, apparently, because <laughs> uh, I didn't give a dime. But uh, just to wrap this up, 
I'm not sure under these debate rules with the national emphasis on polling numbers and grassroots fundraising, which in in effect means you have to raise money from rich people to pay for mail where you lose money to raise $25 in you know Wyoming. I'm not sure a Jimmy Carter would have been able to make it under these rules, maybe even a Bill Clinton, who were not famous nationally. But, you know, that's hypothetical. We can never know. I, I just think the Bullocks of the world, their opportunity to break in through the early states is being choked off by the nationalization of the debate process. Your memory fails you. Well, Bill Clinton was actually quite the favorite of wealthy insiders back in 92 because they thought he could beat mm-hmm. uh, because he, he could beat Bush. And they, they thought of him, you know, he was erudite uh, at the same time that he could relate to folks. And, uh, you know, they liked him. So he actually raised quite a bit of money. Rahm Emanuel was his uh, was his finance director. and they. But, but I don't think he had national numbers early. But anyway, we'll do a special annex show on that. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so uh, new polling out last week from New Hampshire shows mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders in the lead, 26 points, uh, followed by Mayor Pete at 22. Warren and Biden, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, in this latest poll, 14%. Uh, so really, you have a two-tier, at least in this polling. Now, if you aggregate all the polls, it's a, it's closer. But if you, I think, compare polls from a month earlier, what is undeniable, and this is true nationally, it's true in Iowa, and it's true in, in New Hampshire, Buttigieg is up and Elizabeth Warren is down. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, you know, on the one hand, you'd think, Ah, this doesn't make sense because uh, she's running on the left. He's running sort of in the middle. But they are competing for, you mentioned college-educated voters, high-income college-educated voters. I think Buttigieg may be cutting into some of her support among some of those voters. That doesn't account for all of it. I think he's taking some from Biden. But what do you think accounts for Warren's slide, which began with this whole discussion of Medicare for All that you and I were hot and heavy in? Uh, a month or two ago. Yeah, no, it's clear that our clarion call to take another look at that issue uh, clearly resonated. Um, I think if you kind of reduce it now and look at this thing as three, like a three-act play going to New Hampshire, Act 1 was the ascension of uh, Elizabeth Warren. Now she's in Act 2 having trouble. They're taking a second look. She's not doing well in the second look. There are other options becoming more famous. Uh, so she's hit her crisis. She'll either overcome it, and if, if campaigns are literature, she'll have a roaring comeback and, and new and improved, she'll win, or she'll fail. Um, I think uh, in the second act, Buttigieg appeared, and he's done well. He's kind of been the Warren of the middle, uh, which is rising. So n- now, you know, race kind of wants to be a showdown between those two, but you you still have Joe Biden, who has shown, despite all the bad process press and the gaffes and everything else, some resilience. You know, Biden yeah. kind of hangs in there. And he'll get a second look now. He's trying with Absolutely. the bus tour. And if he can execute that well, he, he, he's he got another bite at the Big Apple. Yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, first of all, uh, this process hates a stagnant storyline, right? Yeah, so the storyline yeah, totally. was Biden is dead. Biden, uh, you know, can't hack it. Uh, he underperforms in debates and he will fade. And it, that story has been abetted a little bit by uh, numbers in New Hampshire and Iowa. But I, I think the story is, I think you're right. I think the story is already beginning. You're beginning to see glimpses of stories about, hey, you know, he's, he's resilient. He's still hanging in there. And the truth of the matter is, and we've talked about this before, he has 
continues to have solid support among African-American voters. Uh, and there is no obvious person to take it from them because the two uh, African-American candidates who were in early, uh, Booker and Harris, are having problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, well, let's talk. Let's put a pin well, in let me, it and let me talk about that quickly, right now. J- just yeah, before you finish up, I, I agree with all that. I think the story within the story now for the here to Christmas, and I thought about this when that bad national Quinnipiac poll came out a week or so ago that showed Warren just dropping. Now we know these polls have turbulence and things change. You can see that in New Hampshire, but that was the first time that the ascendant Warren campaign took a real punch in the polling. Yes. And it's going to be very interesting to me to see what they do about it over the next two weeks. So far, nothing, uh, which is interesting to me. Well, I'll tell you something. I think a mistake that they've made, and they've and I've said, and you've said, they've run a very smart campaign. Remember, she was nowhere when this year started, and then she uh, had a steady climb up uh, right into the fall. Uh, but, you know, as we've also discussed, there is a cultural divide between her and a lot of working class Democrats Mm -hmm. for whom she purports to speak. Uh, And, uh, you know, they have not run an ad yet, so far as I know, in Iowa or New Hampshire. Uh, If I were them, I would have been running bio ads all fall, just laying the foundation and uh, letting people know, no, she's not a professor from Cambridge, Massachusetts. They didn't do it. I think they're probably going to after uh, after the holidays, or maybe it'll begin before the holidays. Uh, but the question is, did they cede ground? You know, Buttigieg has now run more than three months of media in uh, Iowa. I don't know how much in New Hampshire, but a fair a substantial. Amount, and South yeah. Carolina now, he started. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that's mostly radio, probably will be TV uh, soon. So uh, in, in, in South Carolina, People say, well, what does all this money mean? That's what it means. Yeah, if yeah, you have a good message, if you have a good message and you can put it on the air uh, and you can sustain it, that is a tremendous advantage. And, yep. and Buttigieg is reaping some of the benefits of that uh, in these early states uh, yeah. where he's advertised. So Harris. Yeah, real quickly on Warren, I don't mean to obsess on it, but she's had a good campaign. But this is one of these moments when the history of the Warren campaign is written where we'll find out if she has a good campaign because the barn's on fire now and they have to take big action about it and TV ought to be part of that. But anyway, yeah, media slamalos on Kamala. Let's talk about it. Yeah, man. The same day, Washington Post, New York Times did pre-mortems. I mean, you've heard of post-mortems. These were <laughs> <Yeah>. pre-mortems. <laughs> you know, she hasn't died yet and they already were writing the obituary on her campaign. And the they, thing they were that in was, the coffin colors. It was rough. That New York Times story, which was about a year long, was something else. 50 sources. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know. You you and I both know uh, through hard experience when a campaign is falling apart, um, there are all too many people willing to offer, from inside the campaign, willing to offer their explanations, Mm -hmm. and they always involve someone other than them. Uh, And so you had fingers pointing in all these different directions, which is a sign of extraordinary distress for a campaign. When in the end of the day, Mike, I do think that without excusing anybody, um, the candidate ultimately bears responsibility Mm -hmm. for the campaign. Barack Obama was a very good candidate and a very good sort of chairman of the board of his own campaign. He knew what was going on in his campaign. He didn't micromanage, but when we steered off course, 
he was he was very good about sort of asking the right questions and making the right decisions. Always backed his team up, but held his team accountable. And I actually think the way he ran his campaign was one of the reasons people decided, yeah, maybe this guy could be president of the United States. You know, he's running this complex organization, taking all these torpedoes. He seems to be able to handle it. Um, I think that there's a candidate problem, and the candidate problem has been from the beginning that. Kamala Harris, as, a, as, as appealing a candidate as she is in some ways, simply could not explain why she was running for president of the United States. And all that confusion sort of uh, was reflected uh, in the different factions within her campaign. Yeah, I agree. It's an old story. The, the campaign has high expectations. It doesn't start to move. Then the campaign breaks apart, particularly the mercenaries start attacking each other uh, in the media, you know, unnamed and the thing eats itself. I mean, for 50 people to, to be part of this, that's what a staff riot looks like. Or it's not just a few unhappy people, but the whole thing is Stalingrad. And there was an earlier story like this in the Times a few months ago that was a dire sign. Clearly, they had a bifurcated campaign of a couple of power centers. And when you have that and there's no success to weld everybody together, you start seeing these media games and uh, – uh, you know, I look, the story already said she doesn't have money for television, and, and these things become self-fulfilling. They, they like, spin into uh, a compounding effect. So uh, it's going to be hard for her with all her other problems to recover, and I, I agree. Somebody at the top of the campaign is at the top of the campaign, and that's generally the candidate and one strong management or advisor staffer who can hold it all together, and th- this is a case study in the opposite. Luckily, this podcast is not recorded, so if she becomes the nominee, no one will remember that we joined in the pre-mortems. Uh, <laughs> That's why we keep that bulk eraser, Andy. We're no fools. Hey, so, so, so just to tie the thing up on Biden, so she's people thought she might challenge him in South Carolina for that African-American vote. Cory Booker, they thought he might challenge him for that African-American vote in, uh, in South Carolina. Doesn't look like Booker's going to get out of Iowa either. Another guy who I think is a very appealing candidate, but just uh, maybe too ephemeral in his message to uh, penetrate. Deval Patrick jumped in the race uh, the last time we got together. He's had not a good two weeks. Uh, yeah, I love the guy. He's a former client of mine. I think he's an enormously talented and well-motivated uh, person. But, you know, these two New Hampshire polls came out last week. One had him at zero and one had him at one. He's the former governor of Massachusetts. A third of his state's media market bleeds into New Hampshire. And his only hope in this race is to do well in New Hampshire and then vault into South Carolina and challenge for that African-American vote. He's got a long way to go sitting there at zero and one percent here in December. Yeah, I totally agree. Remember, we talked about this before. I like the audacity of his move, but it was pretty simple which is get a bump in New Hampshire from Boston media market historical power, which drives a lot of New Hampshire politics, and then leverage that into top three in New Hampshire and then bounce down to an African-American primary like South Carolina and do really well and shock the world. So it was the perfect bank heist, except the problem was step one, do well in New Hampshire. Hasn't happened. So unless he has a miracle two weeks or so and can – uh, be be the big early January story up there, which I think is not impossible, but highly unlikely. Then uh, then it was it was a nice try, and he'll he'll be in candidate prison thinking of the next uh, next caper. Thing about bank heists is you got to get to the bank before other people remove the money, and uh, <laughs> there are a lot of candidates who've taken the money out of the bank already, and right, there's right. not a lot left 
left there for him. So that leaves very, you know, there's not an obvious challenger to Joe Biden for the African-American vote if he can survive doing less than great in the first two states or if he has a revival in those two states where people, uh, you know, are amazed that he's still on his feet and and decide that he actually can be the guy uh, who beats Trump, which I guess is possible. Mayor Pete has has vaulted uh, into the top tier on the strength of largely on the strength of two constituencies, older voters. Weirdly, the youngest guy in the race is now challenging Biden for older voters mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and highly educated voters. We mentioned that before. So he's taking some from Sanders. Uh, I'm sorry, some from uh, Warren, some from Biden. We should j- just note that Sanders was in front in that New Hampshire poll. He had been behind. He's had a little revival too. Apparently, um, the uh, the the stents were not just restorative to his heart health, but also to his campaign. He yeah. he seems to be he seems to be doing. Uh, a little bit better. He owes the uh, evil pharmaceutical companies that made those stents a little note of thanks, and say clearly not only saved his life but saved his campaign. Wait, was that a was that was that a commercial or? Uh, or was <laughs> yeah, that... hey, up, John, come on, I'm shilling for you. <laughs> let's let's buy some ads here. Uh, but no, your point's right. And look, I actually I'm a contrarian on this. I I think Biden's looking great on name ID now, but the challenger Biden's going to have in South Carolina is. Uh, a, a guy named Wubna, which is basically whoever beats Biden in New Hampshire. And I think Wubna is going to come out of that primary with a lot of momentum. It'll be a race. Maybe that'll be Mayor Pete. Maybe it'll be a newly ascendant Warren. Yeah, maybe even Bernie, though I doubt it. Um, but I think it's to Biden's credit, he's hung on, but he's hung on like a whale. He's hard to move because he has all that name ID and that Barack Association. If he can use the bus tour or something, because he's blown it with Hunter Biden and Trump and and the impeachment thing. But if he has a minute to grab the race and do something, then then he could leverage South Carolina. But right now, um, I don't think it's permanent. Mayor Pete's doing just the right thing, which is put on the RF Kennedy outfit and go down there and work it and be rejected and come back and show a commitment. And if he starts winning early and shows up, I think he'll move those numbers in South Carolina. I have to tell you that I think Wubna was actually a, a candidate for alderman in one of those Polish <laughs> wards in Chicago. So <laughs> probably uh, on your client like, list. Amazing that you pulled that name out of your hat there. But uh, Mayor Pete, uh, I agree with you. Uh, he's doing what he has to do, even though it it has shown a light on his problem. And so there are, are stories being written about his problem with the African American community. He visited with Reverend Barber. In North Carolina, a notable figure in the civil rights movement and in the South, uh, talked about uh, faith with uh, uh, activists and voters after uh, the service at Reverend Barber's Barber's Church. Uh, So he and he is touring the area. And I'll tell you something, it's important, not just in South Carolina, because one of the dangers here for Pete is that if voters in Iowa begin to believe that he has a problem with African-American voters that can't be fixed, that could actually leach into his support there, perhaps in New Hampshire. I mean, one of his problems is, and it's a high-class problem, is that he's suddenly vaulted to the top of the polls in Iowa and, and in one poll in New Hampshire, but he's certainly in the top tier there. But he did it in November. I think he's not just dealing with his problem or trying to in South Carolina by spending some concentrated time down there, but he's sending a signal to 
the other states that this is something that he uh, is focused on. But but don't you think if he puts the time and the effort and the shoe leather and shows up and starts to work those communities in South Carolina, he'll do himself a lot of good? I, I've never seen a better expectation set up. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the expectation is that he'll get zero. So there's nowhere to go but up. And I think that Look, there's been a lot said about homophobia among particularly some older African-Americans and, uh, you know, uh, in in the church population down there and so on. Uh, I think that uh, that 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 may be there may be some element of that. I think it's a small part of it. A lot of it is being unknown. Uh, some of yeah. it is just affect. That's what I think. But, but if he does well in those first two states and pays attention, he can get his 15, his 20%. And if he does that, I think that he will have answered the question. But that is, and we've said this from the beginning, that is a big hurdle that he has to clear if he's going to pull off what would be, you know, just an, an enormous uh, upset by, uh, by uh, winning the nomination. So one guy who's not spending any time in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in Nevada, in South Carolina, is Mike Bloomberg. But what he is doing is he's spending a boatload of money, man. $34 million on ad buys so far in uh, all but two of the lower 48 states. I think that's just the beginning. I, I think he's going to spend half a billion dollars before Super Tuesday at the beginning of March, which underscores what we've said before. Which that we got out of the business way too soon. <laughs> well, he knows how to create jobs. We're, we're proving that. Uh, and I, you know what? I he is endorsed by the mayor of Columbia. Uh, he might be going to South Carolina. Just I think that wouldn't be a bad idea to kind of campaign there in a larger sense as a national platform. Look, first of all, disclosure: I'm soft on Bloomberg. I've done work for his independent USA PAC. Uh, I'd vote for him the primary, and I'd be happy if he's a nominee because I think he can beat Trump. There are a couple candidates I feel that way about. I like Bennett, you know, who's another guy who's fallen off the poll meter. I don't want to intrude on the on the sanctity of the ballot box, but you're <laughs> telling me that if 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 uh, Mayor Pete comes roaring out of these first four uh, and looks like he he is on a roll, that you would vote for Bloomberg over him. Well, first of all, I'm deeply in therapy and heavily medicated over the very idea for voting for one of these left-wing fellow travelers of yours. But right now, if I had a magic wand, I like Bennett uh, and I like Bloomberg. Um, I like Mayor Pete. I like smart people. So I like Klobuchar. So I, I think if I were in the California primary and I thought it was hopeless for Bloomberg and my vote would decide it between Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren or something like that, I would vote for Mayor Pete easily. And I think I could live with Mayor Pete, though I'm still trying to find out where he is ideologically because he, uh, he's, he's a little slippery on that. But I'm fond of him, and he's smart, and I would like a smart president, not a clown car. So I'm open to Mayor Pete as a turncoat Republican. I just like Bloomberg because I know where he stands. I like Bennett, but I doubt yeah, he'll listen, be Yeah, listen, Bloomberg is a very form- formidable person, and uh, I, I, don't, I think the question is not that, you know. I mean, he is a guy who's achieved a lot, not just in business, but— you know, he's made a huge impact on issues like uh, guns, on on climate change. And education. Uh, and education and, and health care. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any question. He's a formidable person. question is, does he have a constituency in the Democratic right, Party? Right, I agree. That That's it. And if it's me, he's in trouble. Um, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> he's in big trouble. But look, they're playing the card they have. 
which is a lot of money to tell a pretty good story to see if they can get something going. And it'll be, it'll, you know, we're, we're going to know in March. It'll either work or it won't. I think it's a long shot. But, you know, if you if you want to beat Trump, he's interesting if he can show some success in the Democratic Party. And that's the big open question. It's really hard to start late. You know, we've talked about that. In terms of resources, formidability of history and record, he certainly would be uh, tough. Uh, but culturally, we talked culturally before about Elizabeth Warren's problems. You're talking about the mayor, of a, a Jewish billionaire mayor from New York who supported banning big gulps. Do you think that he ultimately would be competitive culturally? Uh, for some of the votes in these battleground states that a Democrat probably should win or or needs to win in order to secure the state? I think he could be. I need to see him more as this thing progresses in candidate action, because in a general election against Trump, it's who won't be cowed and who will get inside Trump's head the best. And I think in those areas, he'd be strong. If Trump can get him on the defensive, on, you know, war against big gulps and all that, it's a vulnerability, but it's nothing like Medicare for all, um, the vulnerability that a Warren would have. But we don't know. He's got to get out there in the grind. I mean, all we have right now is a media buy, and there's got to be a candidacy. The media buy could open the door to that or could not. But uh, I'll have a firmer opinion about how I think he's selling in a couple of weeks. Just in defense of uh, Bloomberg, if uh, everybody drinks big gulps, we're going to need Medicare for all for sure. <laughs> So, yeah, the truth listen. is the sugary drink thing, and again, I guess I'm taking communist bills here, It there's a real argument for it. There's also an argument for, you know, food formularies and, and things like that for people on assistance. Yeah, because, there is, yeah. yeah. There is, but it's a, it, it, is a, it is a nanny gate kind of, uh, or whatever, nanny state, not nanny gate. <laughs> nanny gate is something completely different. Nanny state kind of issue. So let's talk about Klobuchar for one second before we yeah, leave sure. the Democrats and get Again, on to Again, maybe she'll get her spark in Iowa and be, become part of the conversation. She's had a rally. She, she's an appealing candidate. She just uh, went up with a, uh, a spot in Iowa about her battles against the uh, uh, phar- your, your friends in the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, that is a pretty effective spot. The problem for her in particular certainly for Harris, for Booker, to some degree for Sanders and Warren, and we've discussed it before, is it appears that they're going to be bound in Washington in January at the impeachment trial of, uh, of the president, which is picking up momentum. This is now moving this week to the House Judiciary Committee. But I have to stop for a second here and ask you about one of your Republican brethren here. That's a Senator Kennedy Uh, from Louisiana, who uh, appeared on Meet the Press on Sunday uh, and had this extraordinary exchange with uh, our friend uh, Chuck Todd. I think both Russia and Ukraine meddled in the 2016 election. Uh, I think it's been well documented in the Financial Times, in Politico, in The Economist, in The Washington Examiner, even on CBS, that the uh, prime minister of Ukraine, the interior minister, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, the head of the Ukrainian uh, anti-corruption league, uh, all meddled in the election on social media and otherwise. They worked with a DNC operative. Uh, You should read the articles, Chuck. They're very well documented. 
And I believe that a Ukrainian district court in December of 2018 mm-hmm. uh, slapped down several UK- Ukrainian officials for meddling in our election as a violation of Ukrainian law. Now, I didn't report those facts. Reputable journalists reported those facts. Does that mean that, they, that Ukrainian, the Ukrainian uh, leaders were more aggressive than Russia? No, Russia was very aggressive, and they're much more sophisticated. But the fact that Russia was so aggressive does not exclude the fact that President Poroshenko yeah. uh, actively worked for Secretary Clinton. Now, if I'm wrong, and if actively all these journalists worked for Secretary, are wrong, I mean, my goodness, wait a minute, Senator Kennedy... You now have the president of Ukraine saying he actively worked for the Democratic nominee for president. I mean, now, come on. I mean, I got to put up. You realize the only other person selling this argument outside the United States is this man, Vladimir Putin. This is what he said on November 20th. Thank God nobody is accusing us anymore of interfering in U.S. elections. Now they're accusing Ukraine. Well, let them sort this out among themselves. You just accused a former president of Ukraine. You've done exactly what the Russian operation is trying to get American politicians to do. Are you at all concerned that you've been duped? No, because you just read the articles. Well, yeah, one of my favorite Republicans, I think Kenny Delmar ought to sue to get his act back. You guys can Google (laughs) Kenny Delmar. He's the guy the Warner Brothers ripped off for the Foghorn Leghorn routine. You know, it stuns me that my thoughtful Republican Party could contain a guy like that. I called him a cornpone hustler on Twitter. But I did a little research, and I now know while he we— He started as a Democrat. Yeah, he's one of yours, former Democrat. You can have him back. Yeah. yeah. Well, there are Democrats who would say he improved the quality of both parties, I don't know, by <laughs> moving over. The thing about it is he is—you uh, uh, know, one of the publications he cited was uh, Politico, back a, a story they wrote back in 2017, which has been discredited. Politico just reported yesterday— that the Senate Intelligence Committee, which, as you know, is chaired by a Republican, looked into this Ukraine issue and found nothing. Yeah, no, no, it's total Putin, agitprop, dupe magazine bullshit. But back to our original point, there's a segment of the Trump electorate that, you know, this is dumbass food because they need something to say. It's the old George Lakoff thing. Don't think about an elephant. Well, now we're all thinking about Ukraine meddling in the election because it just plants the seed, even though it's a stone-cold lie. Yeah. When I saw that, I thought immediately that he was bucking for membership in the House Republican Caucus because most of the Senate Republicans have been at least quiet on this, have not been uh, carrying this uh, this load of crap that uh, on Ukraine. But he has really gotten out on a limb on this thing. So I thought it was noteworthy. It also gives you a sense. I, I know I have to do my weekly check-in on Mr. <laughs> Positivity here. Uh, it makes I don't see any sign, brother, that uh, there's a softening in the ranks over there. Well, on like the ninjas, side we're moving silently at night to surprise you. Uh, no, look, there's no way they're going to get 20. The thought of you as a ninja is really Well, there you anyway, go. go there you go. I'm yeah. slow but stealthy. There are a couple loose bolts on the wheel. I think the question would be a four or five peel off so the Democrats can claim a majority. Bipartisan majority in the Senate voted. I think that would be a political wound to Trump that's pretty big. But no, I, I, do I think at 20, I've never believed that. I do think there could be a couple. We'll see. All right, why don't we take a look at what people uh, are asking us in the mailbag. Indeed, time for the mailbag. Now, if you have a mailbag question, 
maybe you're Kenny Delmar's lawyer and you want to know how to uh, get into that thing with Senator Kennedy, you can send us a mailbag question and we will read it. And we get a lot of them. We only pick a few for the year because time uh, is tight. But please send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. All right, X, I have question number one for you from AJ. AJ says, my question goes back to the 2016 election. It is widely assumed that the presidency was Clinton's to lose and that she blew it. These days, it is also assumed that the 2020 election is the Democrats to lose, as long as they nominate a moderate candidate. Do you guys agree with this assessment? If so, what was Clinton's biggest mistake, and how can the Democrats avoid making it again in 2020? What do you think, Axe? I think A.J. must be a reporter because A.J. has mastered the art of the multi-part question, sneaking the goods through customs here. But I will say this. (laughs) I don't agree with the the notion that uh, this is the Democrats' election to lose. I think that this is a 50-50 proposition at best. Uh, Normally, it would be a 70-30 proposition for an incumbent president to be reelected. Normally, a president who has a macro economy that's uh, as strong as as ours is right now uh, would be uh, a strong favorite to be reelected. I think Trump is more even money because of the problems that he has and the fact that he's never even once breached 50 percent in polling and he's seen big losses among independent voters who he carried in 2016 against Clinton. So, but, but he has this base we've been talking about. It is strong. It is, he knows how to speak to it. He's got the advantages of incumbency. Uh, So I call it a 50, 50 race and Democrats could win and could lose. I think that it's going to come down to a handful of States, maybe the state of Wisconsin, very evenly divided state polling has him slightly ahead right now uh, in Wisconsin. And I do think that you're going to have to get some in those battleground states, some voters, not a lot, but some who voted for Trump or who could vote for Trump to walk across the bridge. And I think that one of the mistakes that uh, the Clinton campaign made was to basically tell those voters that they weren't part of the coalition, that Mm -hmm. we've got young people, we've got, you know, liberals, we've got, you know, minorities, and we're the ascendant majority and you don't really figure in this and that's just abetted trump's strategy uh and uh and inflamed his constituency i would not make that same mistake again i'd run for president of the united states and not president of my base and uh you know whether you call that moderate or not i i don't think it's some it's as as much cultural as anything else and uh and i think it's important that the democratic nominee do that the Clinton campaign made a huge mistake writing those voters off. They also, by the way, made a mistake by assuming that, for example, Mike, your home state of Michigan was in their pocket, yep. by assuming that Pennsylvania was in their pocket, by assuming Wisconsin was in their pocket. We now know these are battleground states for a reason, and uh, Democrats need to contest them vigorously uh, this time in terms of resources, candidate time, uh, organizing in ways that they just didn't do in 2016. Yeah, my take is similar. Look, I think the data and the election results in every election since Trump took the oath is pretty clear. The country wants to fire Trump. So the Democrats have the advantage. The problem is, will they nominate a candidate who will give Trump something to work with? So I don't care if it's moderate so much. You know, I'm a conservative. Personally, I'd like a more conservative Democrat. But to win the election, they got to nominate somebody who can not give Trump something to work with, like Medicare for all and can go on the offense and make sure the election is still about Trump, particularly 
in metal bending states in the Midwest. And you roll into Michigan, where I think I still hold the record for the most Republican statewide wins. They uh, and that your campaign theme is I'm going to cut up your union health care. Uh, let me tell you, you're making this thing harder than it ought to be. So I think the Democrats ought to be in the risk avoidance business. And that is the key to the beating Trump business, because Trump is already in trouble. So similar view, I think. Yeah, uh, except on the assessment, I, I think that you're right that if we were, you know, Trump, Trump will lose. One prediction we can confidently make is that Trump will lose the general election. He lost by three million last time. He'll probably lose the popular vote by five million uh, this time. But that's not how we elect presidents. And it's a much closer call in these battleground states uh, and where, uh, you know, People are, are not as apt to say that they want to fire him, particularly in Wisconsin. So uh, it's going to be a battle. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. But doesn't that tell the Democrats that if you have a choice between a candidate yeah, yeah, who no, can run up New York and California by three points or yes. move the right 20,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, it's obvious the Midwestern resonating candidate who may not be the wokest candidate in town is is the better weapon against Trump. Yep. So Deirdre says, why do Deval Patrick and Michael Bloomberg ignore Amy Klobuchar and her position in the moderate lane of the Democratic Party? Do you think there's a sexism issue at play or is Amy just not caught fire regardless uh, of her gender? You, you, you know that she has said that if Buttigieg were a woman, he would not be in the position that he is in. Yes, I, I think in politics you ignore everybody you can possibly ignore because they're not a strong enough candidate. It's not like there's some Olympian Senate where now we must talk about Amy because she's also a moderate. No, they're competing with her. So it's Amy's job to be a strong enough force, and maybe she's getting there in Iowa. We are going to see to force them to talk about her, and she has not done that. You know, I was an early booster of Amy Klobuchar because I thought she looked like a Trump beater in the general election. And that Midwestern moderate theory I was just talking about, or at least Midwestern not liberal theory. The problem is the first two-thirds of her campaign, in my view, were awful. She was passive. She missed her window to be great. Now she's picking it up a little, but it, it might be too late. So I, I think um, it's one of these things where I was disappointed by Amy. If she had run the first half of our campaign like she's been running the last third, I think they would be talking about her because they'd have to be because she'd be grabbing that lane, which she just punted on and didn't do to her to her responsibility. Last third is important, though, and the nature of these things True. is that there is also tumult at the end and uh, there's room for a shakeup. I think her biggest problem is that she's not going to be able to be in Iowa where she should be camped out for the month of January yep. because she has to be in the Senate. But I think Klobuchar has come on here and you can see her notching up in the Iowa poll. Uh, I would not uh, write her out of this script just yet. She's got one more shot, but she could have been in a stronger position now if she'd had her act together at the beginning. And that's not sexism. That's candidate performance. You know, equal playing field here. She could have done great. And maybe again, as you say, she still will. All right. I hear the music. It must be time for... Last call. I'll go first with an incredibly indulgent double windbag last call, but I'll, I'll try to get through it quickly. First of all, movie review. I saw two great movies in the last week, and I want to plug them. One is by a really good director, Ryan Johnson, and I don't just say that because he's a loyal listener to Hacks on Tap, but he always makes good movies, and Knives Out is a lot of fun. It's a throwback to the good old whodunit. It is perfectly made, brilliantly cast. The audience applauded at the end of it. It is a good time at the movies. I strongly suggest you buy a ticket and check it out. 
And the other movie I really enjoyed was Ford versus Ferrari. I'm an old Detroit guy. I know a lot of Hank the Deuce stories. And it's another very well-made movie. Uh, James Mangold, another great director who always does well, and a tremendous cast. Uh, it just works on every level. So those are two movies I strongly recommend you see. And then finally, in the more serious last call department, I just want to, and I never thought I'd be doing this because he was a bit of a knuckle dragger during his election, but Governor Kemp of Georgia is standing up yeah. to Donald Trump. Not a lot of Republicans do this. There's going to be a choice to be made over who will take the Johnny Isaacson Senate seat in Georgia as Isaacson retires. And Kemp is pushing for a Metro Atlanta-friendly woman, businesswoman who's impressive, hasn't been in politics before, which is much more what the future Republican Party ought to look like. Trump is berserk about it. And Kemp actually stood up to Trump. And that is such a rarity in the party. I will give Governor Brian Kemp a salute for that. That is that is noteworthy. They had a meeting in the White House uh, where they tried to stare Trump down on this and apparently didn't resolve their their issues. You probably have a primary coming up yeah, uh, for 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 that uh, for that Senate seat. I want to say a word for poor Tom Steyer, who thought that he could be the billionaire in the race who ran significant advertising and stormed into the picture. And all of a sudden he's middle class again because <laughs> Mike Bloomberg got in the race. And he's going to run more ads and has more to tout and is more likely to break through. So it, it may be that it's time for Steyer to recognize his limitations and, and leave the race. And uh, we'll see if, he, uh, if, he, if he's a listener to Hacks on Tap. There's talk in California about him primarying Kamala Harris because she's looking weak in the presidential campaign. And if she doesn't get out by December, she'll still be on the California March primary where she could come in fifth or sixth, opening up some weakness. So we might not have heard the last from Tom and his uh, mighty checkbook. It could be that the best thing for Kamala Harris is to be challenged by Tom Steyer in the primary. That may, <laughs> may pump, up her, pump up her politics really quickly. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of scripts, as you did, and I'm not sure that those guys aren't optioning some of yours, given how effusive you were in your endorsements of their <laughs> films. You didn't even mention... Uh, the Irishman, which I enjoyed. Did you, yeah, great have Pesci you... performance. You know, a little low key for a change. I, I thought that was great too. I love the interaction with De Niro and uh, Pacino. In any case, we got to draw this script to a close here, and I will uh, talk to you again next week. All right, pal. We'll be talking then. <laughs> <laughs> 